All right, welcome to episode 30 of the Take One Security Podcast. So as I do from time to time, the episode is this week based on a specific topic, which is the Apple encryption debate. So if you're looking for security news, that'll be in the next episode. But I do recommend that you stick around for this one regardless. So here we go. So I've been planning on doing a podcast episode on the Apple encryption debate for some time, but I was not quite sure what the format should be for it. Uh, This problem was basically solved for me when I listened to Sam Harris, who is someone I deeply respect, miss the mark significantly in a recent podcast. So uh, he was actually prepping for a podcast and he wanted to just do some housekeeping And he basically mentioned a bunch of comments that he had about the ongoing Apple encryption debate. And uh, that's what sort of spawned this. So what basically uh, compelled me to respond was the fact that I don't often disagree with Sam. Uh, His logic is usually impeccable. and We often end up with nearly identical opinions. So it was very strange for me to hear him be wrong about something, or at least disagree with me, which, uh, of course, might not be the same thing. But uh, being an information security myself, I thought like I, I felt like I needed to respond. So this essay basically takes the form of a, of a response to his comments, followed by my own points. So first off, Sam's points, and these are not exact quotes, but these are the basic points that he made. So um, Apple built the lock, but didn't build the key. And now they're telling us that building the key would put us all at risk. This is self-serving abdication of responsibility. And that, that's what started me off on like, oh my goodness, I have to respond. Uh, so his next point was community and tech is swayed by the Snowden release. Even when the government gets a court order, they think they shouldn't give access. His next point, gives cases where text messages could have helped solve a murder, uh, but the texts are unread because the iPhone is unbreakable. Imagine being a family member, and he gives an example of like, let's say, you know, your your daughter is, uh, you know, missing or, or, or dead or something, and she had a bunch of text messages with the likely killer and you didn't have the ability to get access to those messages. You know, and he's basically saying, you know, have some empathy or sympathy here and realize that you might want to gain access. Next point. Um, Can someone build an impregnable room inside their own house? So he gives analogies, which he's really good at analogies. And he says, what if someone wanted to build a room inside of their house that was so impregnable that You could go inside of it and no one was allowed to come in. Would that be okay? Right? These are thought experiments and they're very useful. Um, His next one. What if you could take a drug that could make your DNA unanalyzable? So you could never be linked to any crime. The only people who would benefit from that would be criminals. And finally... Apple could maintain the back door and it would be just fine. Just like banks have your banking information and they don't lose it to everyone. 
So they're basically trading on paranoia. So those, those are all Sam's points sort of summarized. So this is, uh, this is my response. First, let's start with where we agree. Um, so in his podcast, he mentioned uh, a cult of privacy. So you talk about a cult of privacy where people are blindly saying that Snowden did nothing wrong whatsoever. He did not set a dangerous precedent that any violation of privacy in any case is always bad, et cetera, et cetera. I absolutely agree with you that this is not an intelligent way to understand and discuss current events. But there's also another cult on the other side, and it's the one that you're coming dangerously close to having membership in, and that's the cult of safety. This one works like this. If there is a situation in which some amount of data could be used to help learn where a kidnapped girl is, or where a terrorist bomb will detonate, then it's within the rights of the government to legally seize that data. So both of these cults sound good to their adherents. Privacy at all costs, sure. Safety at all costs, sure. The problem is when they conflict. So I'm partial to the idea of a model of a spectrum, right? So, and I mean, I got a lot of this from Sam, right? So uh, the moral landscape, right? I'm, I'm imagining something similar to this. Uh, it's a little bit different. It's got peaks and valleys, but similar. So you take like a model of a spectrum. Um, on one side, you have complete privacy, which is cult of privacy or the Snowden extreme or whatever, which by the way, would actually not be accurate because Snowden doesn't actually believe that the government should have zero access to our lives in order to gain security. Uh, his position is actually far more nuanced than that. But anyway, on that side, you, you would not do anything to sacrifice privacy, even if it threatened the safety of billions. And on the other side of the spectrum, the other extreme, you have the cult of safety. And here you are willing to do anything, no matter how much it violates the personal privacy of billions, if you think you can gain one iota of public safety. So the first question is, can we agree that both of these are too extreme? I think so. So but let's agree on that and move on from there. So now we go to Sam's examples. He first says that Apple built the lock, but didn't build the key. And now they're telling us that building the key will put us at risk. And he calls this, like I said, self-serving abdication of responsibility. So this is not correct. And the easiest way to see this is to ask where the lock came from. What lock? The lock is private conversation. The lock is two people interacting with each other in secret. Apple did not invent this. They built no lock. If you're in a crowded room and you see a friend and you want to tell him something deeply personal or politically sensitive or whatever, and you decide to walk outside under the stars and whisper this to your friend, that is the lock. It's a natural lock, a human lock. And we've been using it for tens of thousands of years. So technology has not really created anything new. It's not created some new lock. All it has done is allowed that private whisper under the stars to cross long distances and to be stored. But it's not fundamentally changed. So no, it's not fair to ask Apple to provide a key to that because it would be a key to private human communication, not a key to an iPhone. 
All right, next piece. Sam then talks about how the tech community is unduly swayed by Snowden. So even when the government gets a court order, they think uh, they shouldn't be given access. Well, there's a reason for this. And it's not, it's not a perfect reason. It's not an absolute reason, but it is a solid one. Basically, there's a difference between a government behaving well and a government behaving badly. And the Snowden case revealed that there was quite a bit of the latter happening. So I'm, I'm pretty far on the left uh, in terms of government in ideal situations. In a properly functioning society, I don't see the difference between the people and their government. I want to trust my government. I'm happy to give them you know, all sorts of powers to help protect safety and the public good. But I'm also a student of history and psychology. I know that groups can take on characteristics of evil that the individuals lack. Think Orwell taught these lessons best. If you doubt this, try to imagine a Ted Cruz presidency where he's in charge of the NSA. Question is, would he be trying to be doing to do evil or be trying to do good? He'd be trying to do good, of course. I mean, I, I believe that about pretty much everyone. Um, what would he actually be doing, though? Would he be doing good or evil? I, I think he'd be doing evil or something close to it. And it gets even more muddy when you have good people just following rules in an organization, as we learned with uh, Germany in the 30s and 40s, as well as through countless psych uh, psychological experiments where you give people power to like shock people or hurt them or whatever. And because they're given, you know, a badge or a uniform, they suddenly think it's okay to do that. So basically people and organizations can become tainted by precedent, procedure, fear, and just the banal response of it's my job. So when you see a government, and, and in this case, I actually see dozens of distinct groups of various maturities and alignments in the government. Um, but when you see a government that continues to abuse its, uh, its powers to violate people's privacy and you see that the scope is accelerating in, in its opening rather than slowing down, you have to think that maybe we're approaching something like a, a Ted Cruz police state. And this is not because surveillance, surveillance is bad. It's not because privacy always beats safety. It's not because the cult of privacy is true. Just because the government has a touch of Mental illness is, is the reason we have a problem. And it, it basically means it's not the right time to hand them weapons. This does not mean government is bad. It does not mean that healthy, responsible, and transparent governments that actually represent the people who uh, should not have powers of this kind. They absolutely should. But right now, we're in an unfortunate position of having to defend against overreach from certain government groups. We're in the position of having to push back because they're slurring their speech, screaming terrorists at the top of their lungs and asking for guns, more guns, bigger guns, giant anti-privacy guns. And that's not a good thing. So if like Jean-Luc Picard or Rachel Maddow or Rand Paul, you know, people who are all about some oversight and doing the right thing or whatever, and you know, who knows about Rachel Maddow and Rand Paul and Jean-Luc Picard's a fictional character, but you get the idea. If, if you had some purists in charge who cared about this kind of scrutiny and being careful, 
I'd have a completely different perspective. And my perspective is also temporary. We just need to wait until the slurring and stumbling stops before we can relax a bit. So next point. Sam then talks about cases where text messages could have helped solve a murder, but the texts are unread because the iPhone is unbreakable. And he says, imagine being a family member or something along those lines. So I'm really surprised he took this line uh, because almost identical logic applies to negotiating with terrorists. You don't negotiate with terrorists to get Sally back for a million dollars for a very simple reason. It will lead to the abduction of a hundred more girls just like Sally. Now it's true that bypassing privacy doesn't lead directly to more abductions the way that paying a ransom can, but there is a clear unifying thread. And that is the placing of the good of the few over the good of the many. In the case of terrorist ransom, the family who gets their kid back benefits, while many other families are placed in more danger. That's the good of the few over the good of the many. And in privacy bypass, if you give the government power superior into private encrypted communications, every time they can loosely point to security or safety, then you will be exchanging the privacy of millions or billions for the increased safety of relatively few. So that's a trade-off that we simply have to make with extreme caution, which is precisely the point that Apple is making. Uh, I, I think they see my previous point about the current sick state of some of our government groups with regard to overreach and slippery slopes, and they get that it could have horrible implications to privacy overall. I mean, I, I think their letters and their various responses, you know, capture that pretty well. But that's not even the interesting part. Let's, let's explore it a little more deeply. So let me ask a scarier question regarding the safety issue. I talked about how two people in an open field under the stars who are sharing whispers, right? So I talked about how the content of those conversations are, are private today because they're not being captured. Well, except for they are being captured, right? They're in the brains of the two people who had the conversation. So let's change our statement from above and put it 20 years in the future. What if this man knows the location of the body or a kidnapped person who's not dead yet or whatever, but simply won't give it to us? How would you feel if you were the family? Wouldn't you want to have that data extracted from their brain? Or to use a different analogy of, uh, of Sam's, let, let's say... Um, Apple builds a brain scanning device so people can control their daily tasks without speaking. Uh, so now you could say they built the lock, but not the key because they, they have the technology to scan, which they store encrypted, but they're not giving us access to, uh, to look at those thoughts and intentions and ideas. Unfortunately, the key is to the single most private thing that we have, our own thoughts and memories. So first they wanted to come after a private conversation between two people because it used technology to cross distances. And now they could say that it's okay to read minds because technology allows that as well. So let's be very careful with this. Let's take a step back actually, and let's redefine what privacy is and what it should be considered between humans. 
So I don't have a perfect answer here. Uh, I haven't thought about even modeling what privacy should be uh, more than just, you know, writing these essays and having a couple of conversations with Sam about it. Um, it's a hard problem, but I'm willing to start probably with human interaction between two people and definitely the thoughts in one's own mind. So just because we develop technology to view and capture communication between humans, whether that's from nano microphones that are like aerosol in the air or something, or mics in every building or whatever the technology advanced or basic, or we achieve the ability to read people's thoughts and memories through whatever means, this doesn't mean that the stored encrypted content of those conversations and thoughts now constitute a lock that deserves a key. We must realize that if the right to capture, store, and parse human communication applies across mediums, then it will also likely extend to reading thoughts and intentions from brain as soon as we're able to do so. And that's not sci-fi. That's just a logical progression of technology. So we need to be very cautious about drawing privacy lines correctly, agnostic of technological capabilities, because our capabilities will soon be, and actually already are, extraordinary. All right, next point. Sam gives another example of the impregnable room in the house. I actually kind of just covered that because that room inside the house, which he modeled and said, <clears throat> you know, isn't it crazy that you would have this room and, you know, you wouldn't want, to, uh, you know, uh, criminals and terrorists to be able to go stay in that room where no one could get it. And as I just talked about, guess what that room is? That room is your brain. That room is your own mind. And yes, I would say you probably do have the right to have it be private. Um, if, if you don't, then where is privacy? It can't be anywhere else because that's the last bastion. The only reason we accept now, uh, the only reason we accept the, the brain to be private though, right? The only reason we accept the mind to be private is because there's no tech that allows us to read it. Uh, but as soon as it becomes possible, we're going to run into this head on. So again, I'm not part of the cult of privacy. Um, so do I think there could be situations where it's okay to forcibly read someone's mind to find a memory or a thought or an intention? Who knows? Maybe. I, I honestly can't imagine the situation because to do so is to open the door, right? You start with the situation of, you know, you have these thought exercises, right? You start with the situation of reading one guy's mind to save a billion people, or let's say to save the entire planet Earth. And as soon as that becomes okay, I would argue, and, and you know, this, this can be blown out of proportion into saying, well, you know, slippery slope fallacy or whatever. But I think we've seen with precedent and with history already you really do get these sort of slopes, especially with overeager and under-disciplined law enforcement. And you, you'll go from reading one person's mind to save a planet to 
reading the local perp's mind to see if he stole a Twix at Shopmart, right? And, and that's obviously hyperbolic, but there's truth to it. So I wish that were just an argument from absurdum, but it's actually just the way systems work. And all you have to really do is figure out how to counter that inertia in that direction. It, and it's hard, right? It's not an easy thing. You know, you, you think about how you're going to stop that gate from flooding open even more when, once you set a couple of precedents. And that's entirely the point. Uh, what line do we say no more? If there is such a line, it has to be the human mind, since it's identical to the human soul. All right, next point. Sam, <clears throat> Sam then asks whether it'd be okay to take a drug that makes your DNA unidentifiable. It's a great question, but then he, then he goes on to say that uh, so, sort of what I consider to be very dangerous um, and associated with the cult of safety. He says something to the tune of, this is something that only criminals would want, right? And this rings... This sets off alarms in my head because it sounds a lot like I have nothing to hide so they can look at anything they want. Or why why do I need to encrypt anything because I don't have anything to hide? Or all these sorts of, you know, related arguments. And I'm like, right, only criminals want anonymity. Only criminals want to use encryption. That that really is the underlying sentiment here. And, and I think it's highly flawed. Um, if we lived in Star Trek The Next Generation and... You know, everything was super chill and the government was completely benign, like I actually believe it absolutely can be, by the way, then I, I would mostly agree with this. You know, I, I really would. I, I would say that, you know, why do you need to hide your DNA when there's there's no evil in the world? There's no reason you would ever want to hide. I, I've just, you know, I, I've not seen a place like that, you know, so. I, I do think there are legitimate reasons to want to be anonymous, to want to have privacy um, beyond just the obvious ones. Even if you're not, you know, a refugee, even even if you're not fleeing oppression in China or some other place, even if you're just a regular person, maybe it's okay to have anonymity and privacy. And, and I think that's, there, there's a fundamental disagreement there. It, it seems like Sam doesn't think that there's a legitimate reason why a non-criminal or non-terrorist would want to would want to have these things and, and i think that's something we probably need to discuss it's actually the same with guns if if there weren't any reason to have guns then the danger would outweigh the benefit in overwhelming fashion but it's not that simple there are situations every day where people have to defend themselves where there are no police to help them so they need guns and sometimes people need or want anonymity and privacy and I'm okay with people wanting that at this stage of our development. I think it's okay in concept. Let's say, for example, we have a futuristic society where you walk around and everything is controlled mentally. <clears throat> every object and every other human knows exactly who you are, what you want. You simply wish th something and it appears. Criminals are identified quickly via you know thousands of different methods. Crime is mostly non-existent. Well, what if someone said in this society that they want to live in the countryside and raise sheep? They don't want the brain and DNA scanner. They don't want the mind reader implants and the instant wish granting. 
They want to be off the grid chopping firewood. I say absolutely. Now, maybe they can't come into town like that. Maybe they have to switch on their stuff and decloak and, you know, part of the social agreement for using shared services, you have to do those things. But when they're done, they go back to their cabin. Absolutely. Cloak your DNA, turn off your DNA transponders, whatever. Disconnect the intention prediction engine. Absolutely. All right, next point. Sam then says that Apple could maintain the back door and it wouldn't be a problem, just like banks being able to see our banking details but not sharing them with the public. This is fundamentally different, as I've already covered. If you imagine human attributes and interactions as a set of concentric circles, ask yourself what are at the center versus the outside circles. So how much money you have, I would say it's probably something like ring two or ring three. And what you say privately to other humans on the planet is probably ring one. And what you think and believe and fantasize about in your own mind is ring zero. It's the center of your being. It is your actual soul. So banks having access to your balances is one thing, but governments having access to your private conversations is another. It's sacred human interaction and should be violated only by the most trustworthy and reluctant authorities in the world and in very few situations. And that's fundamentally our problem. Right now we have many government groups, not all, of course, and maybe not even most. In fact, I would say probably not most that are not trustworthy. They are eager rather than reluctant. And they are trying to dramatically increase how often they can make these intrusions. And it's just a bad mix. It's a bad mix. So, my analysis, um, the way I see the Apple case is that they perceive a giant mess of overreach and abuse and slippery slopes. I would wager that Tim Cook would agree with the fact that in an ideal world, we should be able to trust government groups to break privacy in some situations. I certainly certainly believe that. I certainly think that there are some situations where public safety is more important than personal privacy. I also believe that it's possible for governments to use their powers correctly, and even that there are some groups doing that today. But it would be absolutely irresponsible in today's political climate with the clear evidence, not just about abuse, but acceleration of that abuse, to enable further unchecked intrusions into millions of people's privacy. And here are a few additional points. So the underlying challenge facing intelligence right now is not actually encryption. And one person shedding a lot of light on this is uh, the Grug uh, at T-H-E-G-R-U-G-Q, um, really great uh, intelligence sort of uh, resource and personality in the InfoSec space. Um, and the, he's really sort of brought this um, thing to clear focus for a lot of people. Um, the, the problem isn't encryption for, for catching terrorists, right? And, and it's kind of a, a red herring, uh, and I'm not sure how malicious the red herring is, but it's definitely a red herring. The, the problem is poor intelligence infrastructure. Our intelligence services 
don't even have enough linguists to know what terrorists are saying to each other in the clear. Uh, many terrorist coordinations, including much of the recent stuff in Paris and other attacks, are actually being done without any encryption at all, simply because they don't need it. Um, so I wrote a piece recently uh, calling, uh, titled Failing at the Basics in Intelligence and InfoSec. And I wrote, uh, if you're getting successfully attacked by people on known terror lists, speaking in the open over encrypted channel or over unencrypted channels, then you don't get to have encryption legislation. That's for mature organizations who've used their existing tools to the fullest and can be trusted with the additional powers. So I, I think that's a really important point. Uh, basically, the problem is not that we've done everything and now all the terrorists have switched over to encryption and we can't break the encryption, therefore we're unsafe. That is false. Most of this communication is happening in the clear, or at least up to recently. And we don't even have the linguists to speak Arabic or whatever language is being used to coordinate the stuff, right? If, <laughs> so it's a, it's a big misdirection, I, I think. There's also an additional well-known security principle that says that any weakness placed in a system for legitimate use will eventually be used illegitimately. If a friendly government has a backdoor, it's likely only a matter of time before hostile governments, criminals, also have access to it. This is yet another reason to avoid creating the opening in the first place. And Apple talked about that extensively. Finally, the concept of authorities compelling entities to do things they don't want to do in the name of security is troubling due to how many other situations it could apply to. Could they come to a private citizen and tell them to interact and mislead uh, a suspected terrorist? Could, could you be compelled to do so if you were asked? Could they go to a certificate authority and have them issue certain certificates or, or sign certain ones or grant access to public keys or, or private keys? All in the name of security. Um, it's crazy. It's crazy to think about what could they ask you to do as an individual or as a company, if they could ask Apple to build this for them? What else could they ask? Once there's a precedent of do this thing that violates your conscience for security, it seems obvious that this will become difficult to contain. So, summary. The truth of this encryption debate lies somewhere between two incorrect extremes. The cult of privacy that believes no amount of public safety is worth losing one shred of privacy and the cult of safety that believes any amount of public privacy can be sacrificed to gain any degree of public safety. Most people's positions this is number two. Most people's positions are somewhere between these, but it's important to start by acknowledging that both sides are flawed and that the answer at any given moment lies somewhere in between. Number three, it's sometimes okay to sacrifice some degree of privacy to gain some degree of safety. Number four, it's sometimes okay to sacrifice some degree of public safety to preserve some degree of personal privacy. Number five, 
The amount of trust that should be given to public representatives, i.e. the government, should depend on how they're handling that trust. When they're representing our interests transparently, they should have strong capabilities to intrude in our privacy for public safety, because we know they will do so with extreme reticence and judgment only when needed. When that trust is being significantly abused, the public should be able to dial back the powers of the government until they can regain their organizational and or moral footing. Another point that I'll mention here, uh, which is something that uh, actually happened in, in, on Twitter as a result of some of this conversation, was someone mentioned, <laughs> it doesn't matter if you get Jean-Luc Picard and you give him all the, uh, the access and the ability to you know, intrude in privacy because he's Jean-Luc Picard and he's, you know, this perfect, you know, philosopher king and he just will never intrude. Uh, this person on Twitter says, he'll have sons <laughs> and the sons will, of course, secede him. And uh, what are their political beliefs? Maybe not the same. So now you have all these faucets turned on at full blast. Uh, and full access and full control. And uh, it turns out, you know, it's, uh, it's some Ferengi instead of uh, Jean-Luc. All right, number six. The current state of a number of government organizations with respect to their treatment of the public's trust to do the right thing with privacy-breaking powers is poor. We can see this from multiple sources and examples over the last several years. For this reason, it is a strong and defendable position for companies to deny them backdoors and other attacks against privacy while there is a reasonable expectation that such powers will be abused. Number seven, when you place backdoors, they are as likely to be abused as used over long periods of time. Number eight, if a precedent is set such that governments can compel individuals or organizations to do things that they are uncomfortable with in the name of security, this will quickly expand to cover a great many situations. Number nine, Apple's position reflects these observations, and that's why I support it. If and when the behavior of our government changes, I will support expanding government powers to peer into private communications as needed in very limited circumstances with heavy oversight, as I believe such behavior to be in the best interest of a global community. In short, there is a world where creating this backdoor and other privacy bypasses like it would be the right thing to do. We simply don't live in that world. All right. So that was the content of my response to Sam. We exchanged a few emails afterwards. And uh, as I expected, he was awesome enough. He actually tweeted out the essay saying, I don't agree with all of it, but this is a very good response to my remarks about encryption. Uh, I'm not sure why people insist on seeing him as close to argument. He's extremely open to argument. Um, and that should be obvious from the way he's handling this. Um, there's also been a number of calls for 
uh, me to go on the podcast. Uh, Sam was like, who, who should I talk to about this? And uh, a bunch of people are saying that, you know, we should get on a podcast and go through this, maybe even expand both of our positions even further during the course of conversation. And if that happens, I'll update the thread with a link. Um, a lot of this content is in the show notes itself. It's actually in the form of an essay, similar to the way uh, that you just heard it now. And uh, that's it for this episode. And uh, I'll see you next time.